Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you all tonight. Trust you're having a good week. We uh, start our journey through uh, 1 Thessalonians tonight, and so we want to take the first uh, five verses in chapter 1, and uh, let me uh, lead us in a word of prayer here. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to come together in Jesus' name once again, and uh, we thank you for who we are in Christ, as we will see in our text even tonight. And uh, so we rejoice in the family of God that you have uh, created, that you are building. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, tonight would be a strengthening night in all the ministries, the Awana program, youth group, uh, and as well as our time together in study and prayer. So commit our evening, ourselves to you once again. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is one of the first books that the Apostle Paul wrote. Uh, some might argue it was the first. What was the other candidate be? Do you know? Well, Galatians was probably the first book that he wrote, maybe 48. We think this was written about 51 or so. So it was still very early. And uh, note on the overhead here, the theme, uh, what I call the day of Christ, really emphasizing the rapture, the coming of Christ for the church. And uh, we are in this section here, salutation and commendation of a, of a model church. He's got a lot of positive things to say about this church here in the first chapter. And uh, then as we uh, note uh, the purpose, let me read a few things here. On his second missionary journey, Paul went to Philippi, which was the first city in Europe to receive the gospel. From there he went to Thessalonica. That's where we are in our study. Then to Berea, then to Athens, finally on to Corinth, where he remained for about 18 months. We think he's writing from Corinth back to Thessalonica. According to Acts 17, Paul was able to teach uh, in the context of the Thessalonian synagogue for three weeks. But then because of turmoil, he had to depart. So he did not have a lot of time here, uh, his initial uh, time here with uh, the Thessalonians. wasn't very long. Uh, Paul later on the journey received word that the church was doing well. <clears throat> he responded by writing the letter of 1 Thessalonians to encourage them in the face of persecution, to refute uh, false charges being propagated against him, to make clear the timing of Christ's coming for the church and the believers who had died prior to that event will also share in the rapture, to exhort them to holy living, and to instruct them regarding their relationship to their spiritual leaders. So that's a good summary in terms of what we have here in the book. Uh, Thessalonica is still in existence today. I went to Bible college with a young man from Thessalonica. So he told me he's from, he's from Thessalonica. I said, wow, really? You're from the biblical Thessalonica? He said, yeah. And so it was kind of cool. But uh, today there's a, a town there of about 400,000 people. So it's a pretty good-sized little city. Uh, in Paul's day, we think it was about half that, about 200,000 or so. Uh, let's see if i got a map here. I don't know if you can see this here, but uh, here we are, Ephesus, Asia Minor, and uh, kind of a central uh, place there in terms of his, his ministry here at this point. Uh, okay, um, there was uh, confusion, as I say, about Christ's return. There was concern about uh, whether they had entered into the day of the Lord because they were experiencing some persecution, thinking, oh my, maybe, you know, maybe we missed the, understood here that uh, we're going to go into the day of the Lord judgment because we're experiencing this persecution. And Paul's correcting that. Also, they thought, you know, okay, some have died since Paul came here. Uh, have they missed out now if the Lord comes? Are they going to go in the rapture? 
And so there was uh, that kind of confusion. All right, uh, Paul writes to uh, correct this and, and inform them, further educate them and bring them along. Let's have somebody read uh, verse 1 to get us started. Who wants to read verse 1 here tonight? Yeah, Vince? Okay, thank you. So uh, here we have the greeting, and he, you know, I think it's good. You know, we sign our names at the end. Maybe good to put it at the beginning. You have to look at the end, right, to see who it's from. <laughs> Makes sense to put it at the beginning. Uh, Paul did that. Uh, he's the he's the apostle Paul, of course. He's the he's the writer of the letter, but with him are Silvanus, uh, which is the Latin name for the Greek word or the Greek name Silas. And, of course, the context here is the second missionary journey. And you know what happened after the first missionary journey, right? Uh, Paul and Barnabas had a little breakup, right, over John Mark. And so who did Paul take then? Well, he took Silas. And so Silas is in the picture here at this point. And they uh, picked up Timothy on the second missionary journey. Uh, So he's involved in, in the ministry, in the work here now as well. Uh, After Paul had been to Thessalonica, he sent Timothy to follow up. Timothy reported back to Paul, and now Paul is responding to that follow-up ministry of Timothy. Notice he addresses them uh, to the church, which literally means called out ones, called out assembly, called out ones. could be used in different contexts, but it is the word that the Holy Spirit chose to use for the New Testament believers. We are called out of the world. We are called to Jesus Christ. We belong to Christ. We're now in Christ. Uh, we are the called out assembly. Uh, that's, that's who we are. Uh, specifically uh, to the church of the Thessal- Thessalonians. Uh, local assemblies in view here. The word church is used in two different ways. It's used in a universal sense. All of God's people who are called out of the world who now belong to Christ. But then it's used in reference to local churches as well. In fact... Uh, The word is used 114 times in the New Testament, and 90 of those times it refers to the local church, because that's really where ministry happens. That's where you have leadership. That's where you have accountability. That's where you have gift use. All of these things are in connection with the the local church. Uh, And so that's the emphasis here as well, to the church of the Thessalonians. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is our spiritual sphere. We are in God, the Father, and in Jesus. And uh, this is our, our spiritual union, our, our spiritual place where, where we are. And uh, note that it's linked by the single preposition in. In God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, uh, what might this suggest to us? Uh, we have God, the Father, and Jesus linked by a single preposition. What does that kind of suggest to us grammatically? There's an equality there. They're, they're on the same level here. It's coming from both. And, and so, yeah, this suggests the deity of Jesus Christ here, putting him on the same level uh, with the Father in terms of uh, both being linked here uh, within the greeting in this way. And then note he says, uh, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is wonderful. You know, we don't want to overlook this. Sometimes we say, well, here he is again. He's saying this. He says it almost every letter, right? Grace to you in peace. Grace to you in peace. I mean, we we just kind of skip over that. But uh, this is really foundational to what we are all about as Christians. Uh, It goes back to grace and peace. 
Uh, grace means God's unmerited favor, uh, his undeserved favor. Uh, that's who we are forever and ever. Amen. We are children of grace. Children of God are children of grace. We have come to receive of the grace of God and in our experience, and we are experiencing his grace day by day. Uh, for us, uh, we are trophies of grace. It's all about grace. Uh, Philip Yancey is a Christian author, and he wrote, Above all else, grace is a gift, one I cannot stop writing about until my story ends. Uh, isn't that the truth? I mean, for us, it's all about grace. And, uh, and one thing about grace is it can't be compromised. You can't, if you try to add human works to grace, you all of a sudden don't have grace. You, you have another gospel, as Paul brings out in Galatians chapter 1. So he says, grace to you and peace. Peace is the idea of tranquility or, or well-being. Uh, and, of course, grace is always first. Everything flows out of grace. Everything is based on grace. Grace to you and peace. It's never peace to you and grace. No, it's always grace and then peace. God's peace flows out of his grace. So, uh, and notice he says, uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now, sometimes people almost say, well, this is kind of a prayer wish coming from Paul. Uh, it's much more than that. This is a greeting, a greeting from God. Uh, that's what he says. From God the, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So really, as he is introducing himself and giving this greeting, it's also including a greeting from God. Grace to you and peace. You say, well, if God's writing the letter to you, what's the first thing he's going to say to you? Well, through Paul, he is saying grace to you and peace. And who's it from? Well, it's from God our Father. Uh, God, our Father, He is our Father, the one who sovereignly cares for us, who has the oversight of us in, in every respect, uh, the benevolence of, of our Father. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, they are linked on the same level. Uh, Lord means Master. Jesus means God's Savior. Literally, uh, that's what the name means. Uh, Yahweh is salvation. Uh, God's Savior combination. Uh, you should call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. Uh, so from the Master, Lord, Master, Jesus, God, Savior, Christ literally means anointed one, the chosen one, the special one who was prophesied to come in the Old Testament. So it's, this is who it's from. Uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father, our benevolent caretaker, sovereign benevolent caretaker, and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we find they're on the same level, and the message is from God, and a reminder that he has bestowed upon them as his people, as the church, grace and peace. That's our position. You have all received God's grace, and you're all in a position of peace. We've been reconciled to God. We're in a peace relationship with God now. And we have been the recipients of his grace. It's true for every child of God. This is God's message to you. And then there's a practical uh, angle to it, too. Uh, we have been saved by grace, and we live by grace. Grace upon grace, piled upon grace, as John says in chapter 1. And then there's the peace of God that passes all understanding that we can experience in our practice. So there's our position. That's the message from God. But it also has a, a practical application in terms of our, our life. Okay, uh, any other thoughts there as we go through verse 1? Okay, let's go to verse 2. Uh, who wants to read that for us? Verse 2. Yeah, John? Just two. Well, let's just take them one at a time here. 
You know what? You get the feeling he appreciated these people at Thessalonica. How many of them? All of them. All of them. You know what? All God's people are special. Uh, you know, to live above with saints we love will be glory. To live below with saints we know, that's another story, right? Well, there, there are challenges. There are challenges. But uh, notice uh, he's uh, appreciative of all of them. They're all special. They're all precious as God's children. Uh, they're blood bought, right? They belong to Jesus Christ. They're all precious by virtue of who they are in Jesus Christ, which is what he has just emphasized here. So he's giving thanks for them. He's thankful to God for each one of them. There's something wrong if you can't say, Lord, thank you for that person. Uh, I'd rather that person be eliminated. (laughs) That's not not the Holy Spirit. Uh, That's not the Spirit of God. As God's children, uh, we should be thankful for everyone. And you know, it's interesting in Paul's writings, thanksgiving is a huge part of his uh, prayer life. And we see him introducing it here. Uh, giving thanks to God. Okay, you say, well, what should I pray for that person? Maybe thank God for them. Maybe we could start there. Thank you, Lord, for that person. You say, I don't feel like saying it. Well, maybe say it and pray that God will change your heart to where you can mean it. Uh, We give thanks to God. Notice he's saying always for you. When he thinks about them, he's thankful for them, and he's consistently thankful for them always. And then he says further, making mention of you in our prayers. So he is thanking God for them, and he is keeping them in his prayer life constantly. Uh, This is what the first thing he says, right after the introduction, right after the uh, greeting. The first thing he says is, I'm praying for you. I'm thankful for you, thanking God for you, and I'm praying for you. Okay, any other thoughts there? All right, let's press on to verse 3. Who wants to read verse uh, 3 for us? Yeah. Jeff? Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor, love, and patience, and hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God's love. Thank you. <clears throat> okay, so uh, he says, remembering without ceasing. Uh, this uh, spurs, uh, you know, as he's thinking about who they are in Christ, uh, it spurs thanksgiving for them. And uh, it spurs him to make a mention in terms of uh, remembering their work of faith, labor and love, and patience of hope. Now, it's interesting. He says this, you know, he thinks, so why is he so thankful for these? Well, because they are children of God with some real legitimacy. I mean, he's not, there's evidence, great evidence that these are truly born-again Christians. And so he is uh, thanking God and praying for them, but Also in that same breath, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Now, as we think about the Christian life, it starts with faith, right? Everything starts with faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it starts with faith. And he starts by emphasizing work of faith. Uh, We're not saved by faith plus works. We're saved by faith alone. But as the Reformers would say, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves does not remain alone. Right? It, it works. And so what you have here is a faith that works. Uh, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. You have a faith that works. It demonstrates itself in your life. And, of course, this is James' great emphasis here. Um, I guess I forgot this. Uh, okay, we'll come back to that maybe. Uh, James 2.26. Uh, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So... Uh, 
You know, we talk a lot uh, uh, here at our church about having a living faith in, in contrast to a dead faith, uh, a faith that works in contrast to a faith that doesn't work. Uh, there is such a thing as a bogus kind of faith. These people had a faith that works. Uh, he's remembering their work of faith. And then he says, and labor of love, labor of love. Uh, they were also characterized by love. Uh, the word love here is agape. It's the intense word for love. It's uh, a love that's born out of the will, that gives of itself sacrificially, uh, thinks of the other person first, uh, is for the benefit and for the good of the other uh, this is the kind of love that described them. And notice he says labor of love. The word labor is the idea of toilsome, toilsome labor. They're working hard at it. They're not, they're not just talking about it. Uh, they are sincere. And this is a key evidence of, of true salvation, right? Now, we're not saved by love either, right? No, we're not saved by love. Unless you go to a liberal church, then you are. But no, you're, you're not. Uh, love is the fruit, and, uh, you know, 1 John three fourteen, we know that we passed from death and life. By the way, I'll come back to this, but that word no here is oida. Uh, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. This is evidence that uh, you are a true believer because you love the brethren. You know, it's always interesting. These people uh, want to claim they're Christians, but they don't want to have anything to do with Christians. It's kind of like, you know, what do you do with a verse like this? They were intent on their love, their labor of love. It was strong. And then he says, and patience of hope. So we've got faith, love, and hope here. The, these three, uh, these three that are the greatest. And uh, patience of hope, uh, the idea here is endurance of hope. Um, uh, the idea of hope in the New Testament is a certain expectation. That's the idea. You know, sometimes in our common vernacular, we kind of have a, a hope so hope. I hope it rains. Soon, we need some more, right? But that's not the kind of hope we're talking in the New Testament. It's a no-so hope. It's a certain expectation that God will bring to pass his promises. And so that's, and when he says endurance of hope, it's in the context of persecution. Uh, they are going through some hard times, and yet in the midst of those hard times, they are continuing to have this hope, this certain expectation that God will bring to pass what he has promised, that God will fulfill his promises. And again, in context, I think even in the verse here, uh, and it's certainly in the larger part of the book here, uh, we have the coming of Christ on the horizon. And so there's a certain expectation uh, concerning uh, the coming of Christ. We see as we go down here at the, verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven, uh, whom he raised from the dead. So, so that's what they were doing. They were waiting, which is consistent with, with hope. Um, and again, uh, this is connected to our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, and the patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's very directly connected, the, the hope that they have with the person of Christ. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope. What is it? Glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is our blessed hope. And that was certainly true here uh, for them. Um, Notice uh, he says here, uh, and uh, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So they have hope in connection with Jesus Christ. And uh, then he adds this little detail in the sight of our God and Father. Why do you think he needs to say that? Not that he needed to, but why do you think he said it? 
Well, it's a reminder. It's a reminder that everything that they're doing in terms of their faith, love, and hope is being carried out in God's eyes. God is seeing everything they're going through, everything they're about. It's happening in the sight of our God. And it's a good reminder, right? Everything is naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so it's just a good reminder that God is watching everything that is going on in your life and mine. He knows all about us at every point. All right. Uh, okay. Any other thoughts there? Yeah. Right. That's good. So while we wait for his coming, right. we are busy serving God and serving one another. That's good. Amen to that. That's great. Amen. Very good. Anyone else? Yes, Kurt. Right. Amen. Anyone else? Okay, let's have somebody read verse 4. It's just a little bitty verse, but there's a lot there. So let's have somebody read verse 4 for us. Yeah, Amy? Okay, very good. So, uh, you know, uh, my King James, uh, New King James, says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. But uh, what translation did you have? Okay, which is good. ESV is also very literal here. We know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. There's a real connection between loved and chosen. And, of course, God is the one who's, who's doing both here. Um, when it says beloved, uh, the, the idea here is um, God's special love is behind his choice of them. That's the idea. And what we have here is the doctrine of election. And the doctrine of election is interesting. And I'll tell you why it's interesting. Uh, it's the God side of things, and we don't know much about it. Right? I mean, that's true. Uh, I, I wish Paul would have elaborated on it somewhere, just that he doesn't. But it is a fact. And uh, this is what he states here. Uh, that God's love is tied to his choice of them. Uh, knowing... Uh, Beloved brethren, your election by God. Uh, the word election means uh, to choose or choice, uh, to pick. And uh, the emphasis here, again, is God's choice. Uh, do we elect God or does God elect us? 
Well, the emphasis here is your election by God. It's God's choice. And uh, it's, all, it's all God here, God's loving election. And, of course, Paul does state this different places. Uh, we have this in Colossians 3.12, therefore, as the elect of God, the chosen, holy and beloved. Uh, this is their position. Now, practice put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So it's stated as a, as a statement of uh, encouragement, a statement of assurance in this context here. But, uh, you know, there's mystery here. We would like to know more, as I say. But uh, uh, we do know that uh, we are chosen by God. And as far as election, uh, it really goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, you know, the, the doctrine of election begins in the Old Testament, and the New Testament builds on the concept that we have in the Old Testament. And uh, what do we see back here in terms of God's electing uh, or choosing Israel? Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you and uh, because he would keep the oath which he swore. He's going to keep his word. Uh, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you with, uh, out of the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Uh, why did God choose Israel? Because he wanted to. <laughs> you know, I, I like a little more information here too, right? Wouldn't you? I would. I'd say, well, he, he did it. Well, sure, he loved them. But why? Why did he love them? <laughs> uh, it comes back to, you know, God is God and God can do what he wants. I don't know why God chose this little nation versus, you know, we could start building an argument as far as where they're located and they're real small and, He's going to bring himself glory. You know, but it doesn't specifically state why. There's other little nations, right? Uh, sure, even today, there's all kinds of little nations. But um, he, he did. He chose Israel. We know that for sure. Uh, they are the elect nation. They are the only chosen nation. It's not the United States, by the way. It's not the United States. We are not the favored chosen nation. I know that comes as a surprise to some Christians, but it's, it's true. It's not us. Um, and then, you know, as we come to the New Testament, we, we have verses that are really hard to get around related to the doctrine of election. For example, in Acts 13, 48, Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. That's an interesting combination. The grammar is very clear. It's uh, accurately brought up cross here. All the translations bring it through. Um, it's interesting. You know, we might expect this to be the other way around, right? As many as believed were appointed to eternal life, but it's kind of like, no, as many as had been previously appointed to eternal life, then believed. Yeah, that kind of makes your head want to scratch your head, right? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure, I realize the debate, and and uh, but the point is that I'm bringing out is there is a doctrine of election, sure. and uh, that that we can't argue, and uh, and and it's it gets difficult as far as how does election fit in with human response, and so that's the challenge. 
Um, verse, uh, verse, uh, my next slide here. Election is a doctrine that has been debated for centuries. Ironically, it's a doctrine that no one completely fathom. I find it interesting that sometimes fight over, fight most intensely over things you don't fully understand or know. Isn't that kind of a commentary on humanity? I think so. Uh, it, it, this has been going on for 400 years in terms of the, the battle here. No one uh, who takes the scripture seriously denies the reality of God's sovereign election. And yet no one can completely comprehend it. Election emphasizes that salvation is ultimately of God. It was his idea, not ours. It's based on his initiative, not ours. Election reminds us that salvation is God's work and that he who has begun this good work in us will complete it. He has chosen to do so. So this is, uh, this is you know, the, like I say, the God side of things. And we can't completely comprehend it. Uh, at least I don't think so. Uh, Homer Kent says the sovereign act of God chose uh, some to experience the blessings of salvation. The reasons or criteria for his choice have not been told to us. And that's a really important point. Except that it was according to his own good pleasure, as he says in Ephesians. You know, again, like more background information, why? We'd like to answer, have God answer the question, why? God hasn't told us that. Uh, so sometimes we, we try to figure it out, and we want, we want it to satisfy us in every regard. But it's challenging. When it comes to the doctrine of election, people often get out of biblical balance, in my opinion. There are tensions here regarding God's sovereign choice and the responsibility of, of human response. I want to go wherever the scripture leads me. I want to hold to an inductive view that brings all the verses to the table. That's why I call myself a biblicist. Versus uh, merely being a Calvinist, emphasizing God's sovereignty, or an Arminian, emphasizing human response, although I emphasize a, a God-centered theology. The difficulty, uh, this is Bible knowledge commentary, the difficulty in putting divine election and human responsibility together is understanding how both can be true. That both are taught, or that both are true is taught in the Bible, how both can be true is apparently incomprehensible to finite human minds. No one has ever been able to explain this antinomy satisfactorily. Antinomy is something you just cannot put together. And uh, I, I concur with that. I know there's people on both sides. That say they think they have it figured out, but I don't think so. Um, so here, note, uh, these three things must be kept in biblical tension. Number one, God has chosen some for salvation. Uh, number two, whoever desires may come. And number three, everyone is responsible for what they do with Christ. Uh, I think all three of those are true. Uh, I don't understand exactly how they all fit together, but I believe in the mind of God they do. But the point I think that we want to make here is this. God's loving election, uh, what, does it, what does it mean in context here? Come back to the beginning of verse 4, this little verse that we're looking at. And notice he says, knowing, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. You've been chosen by God. How do you know you've been chosen by God? Well, you, you know it because of the things that he just described in verse 3. The work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. Uh, now, in terms of knowing if somebody is saved or not, only God has absolute knowledge, right? 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I, you know, prove it. 
<laughs> but the Lord knows. The Lord knows those who are his. And, and ultimately, I mean, God alone is the final judge. He is the, is the one who knows everything. Uh, so, so we don't know everything, but, but God does. And yet Christ said, you will know them by their fruits. I think there is evidence in the, in the life of those who really know the Lord. The word knowing here is the Greek word oida. We, same word as I say in 1 John three fourteen. We know that we pass from death unto life. Uh, the word knowing here is the Greek word oida, which has to do with perception or discernment. Uh, Paul is expressing confidence that they are saved because of two things. Number one, their response to the gospel. And number two, the ongoing fruit in their lives. These two things provide real solid evidence as to who is really saved. And so I think uh, really what we have here is an expression of confidence from the Apostle Paul that they are truly, he's confident that they are truly saved because of what he sees in their lives. Um, I guess one more here. Note very carefully that Paul did not glibly say he knew they were the, the elect. It's couched in a context both backwards and forwards of great evidence. The evidence looking backward to verse 3 is their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Looking forward, Paul goes on to show in verse 5 their quality reception of the gospel and their ongoing testimony. So what I'm saying is verse 4 is couched in a context related to what he has just said about their, their work of faith, their labor of love, and their endurance of hope. And then going forward, we have verse 5 which is also uh, evidence that they are truly saved. And uh, with that, uh, any other input here? Yeah, Kurt? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Not for sure. Although Paul was quite confident that these. Right. Uh, there was there was some real fruit here. Some real evidence that he could say knowing. I mean, he was confident. He had that that uh, you know conviction that they, that they were there. But ultimately, you're right. Uh, ultimately, only God knows. Yeah. Yes. It's interesting. The emphasis in the scriptures, the little bit we have on the elect, is really not in relationship to the lost. Uh, you know, as far as what our message for them, uh, we are going, presenting the gospel is, is for everybody. And, and it's like Ironside said many years ago, you know, over the door of heaven you have, whosoever will can come. And you step through the door and you look back, chosen from the foundation of the world. And so both of those are true. Again, I can't fully get my head around that, but I'm really quite content with being a human with my three-pound brain. I don't have to figure out the God side of things. Uh, it's a great assurance as you have this in your life. Yeah, you are part of uh, the chosen by God. But uh, all that's involved in the sovereignty of God here and how that intersects, I don't know. I do know that you have to respond. And if you don't respond in saving faith, you're going to go to hell. Uh, that's on you. Uh, that, that's the human side, and that's what I'm really preoccupied with in my mission here. 
Uh, I know people get all wrapped up in the divine side, and it's kind of like, maybe, maybe you want to leave that with God. We're not even told much about it. It's true. Maybe we want to emphasize the, the human responsibility side, which is where we're, where we're at. Okay, um, let's have somebody read uh, verse 5. Who wants to read verse 5 for us to finish us out here tonight? Yeah, Anita? Okay, so he's continuing his thought here. And he says, um, as far as uh, the preacher's uh, expression of assurance... He says, uh, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. So we need to show up and give a message and, you know, nothing happened, right? We were just kind of, and sometimes you almost feel that way. You know, there's not much, there's nobody responding. There's nothing happening. That didn't happen here. He says, our gospel did not come to you in word only. When we preached, it was not just a bunch of words and nothing happened. No, but also in power, uh, convicting power, mind heart-changing power, life-changing power. Uh, It came in power. The the message was powerful. And in the Holy Spirit, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who's really doing the work. Uh, We are dependent on the Holy Spirit. And and power and the Holy Spirit are linked here. They go together. Uh, uh, The power of the Holy Spirit to convict, to enlighten, to, to bring about repentance I mean, this is, this is the work, work of God. Uh, the goodness of God leads to repentance. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So uh, the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, they go together. And he says, you know, it wasn't just in word. We weren't just saying a bunch of words, but it came with power and in the Holy Spirit. And in much assurance, uh, I think Paul's talking about when they were on the scene, they had great confidence in how they presented the message. There was a holy boldness in their presentation of the gospel. And so there, there, you got this, this whole combination here. Uh, the message was going forth, it was powerful, it was in the Holy Spirit, and it was, it was presented with great confidence, great assurance, great holy boldness. And then this uh, also was in the mix. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. It came also with integrity. Integrity on the part of those who were presenting the message. They weren't just a bunch of talkers and then living a different way, a double life. No. Uh, As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Uh, You know, I think about apologetics. And we we talk about apologetics. In fact, we're having an apologetics conference. By the way, did you see a sign up at the top? Did you put the sign up there? That was nice. Uh, That's that's good. well, that would get people's attention. That's, that's really good. That was well placed. But so, I mean, praise the Lord for apologetics, uh, you know, which is the idea of a defense of the faith, you know, giving reasons for the faith. But I, I think about some key apologetics in the scripture, such as Israel. I mean, Israel is God's key apologetic, you know, how he has worked. This is evidence. And the, and the Messiah, the resurrection, all that. But what about how we live? You know, we should be a walking apologetic. A defense for the faith that God has changed my life, and and I live a life of integrity. That's what he's talking about here, right? As you know, what kind of men, what kind of people we were among you, for your sake. I mean, then were the New Testament on display in terms of changed lives, in terms of the reality of the Holy Spirit, in terms of the living God living inside them. This is a very important part here. 
You know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Okay, well, as we wrap up here tonight, uh, what do I got? I got one more slide here. This is what I got. Note this lesson, the power is in the gospel as it is empowered by the Spirit. However, God effectively uses vessels that are full of faith and integrity. Paul says, you know what kind of men we were. This tells us it's important to be the right kind of people as we present the right message. If, if we are the wrong kind of people, I think it will, it will hinder our message. It just go, goes to, to reason. <laughs> if it was effective, you know what kind of men we were. Uh, well, <laughs> if they were not the right kind of men, that also would be uh, uh, counter-effective. Well, knowing. How does he know that they are the elect? The chosen. Well, he mentions a lot of things. Uh, their faith, their love, and their hope. And uh, then how they received, uh, you know, how they received this. And uh, how the Holy Spirit uh, enlightened them. And how the Holy Spirit worked in their hearts as demonstrated in their lives, as we saw in verse 3. These become the evidence of true salvation. The people are truly saved. And hopefully people can say a verse 4 about me, right? And about you. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, it stands out. You know, there's certain people who say, boy, yeah, there's no question about their commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, I think Paul is making that kind of a statement here. And that should be able to be said about you and about me. All right, any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Yes. Whenever the subject comes up of election, yeah. I always have to go back to Romans 11. Yeah, you want to read it? Okay. All the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If we had those answers, then we would want the glory. Right. Amen. And it plainly tells us there that it's past finding out. So, I mean, and this is after he has just discussed this whole issue uh, of uh, election and also human responsibility. Election, chapter 9, uh, responsibility, chapter 10. And then we come to chapter 11. The conclusion of the matter is, oh, by the way, we can't completely figure this out. So I, I think, amen, that's, that's where I'm at, you know. I, I like to say I, I'm in the middle, but I can't solve the riddle, right? <laughs> there, is, uh, there is sovereignty. There is human responsibility. I don't have it all figured out, but God does. God does. Thank you. All right. Anyone else? Okay. Uh, let's share some uh, prayer requests. Anybody need a prayer sheet? Everybody's got a prayer sheet? <laughs> 